Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present David Vine, professor of political anthropology at American University and author, who talks about the danger of rising U.S.-China tensions after the shooting down of what we were told was a Chinese spy balloon. Amanda Kiger, director of the group River Valley Organizing, who discusses the health consequences of the February 3rd East Palestine-Ohio train derailment that released dangerous toxic chemicals. And journalist Bryce Green, who asks why U.S. corporate media has ignored Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Seymour Hersh's recent report that concludes the U.S. blew up Russia's Nord Stream natural gas pipeline in September. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. India is completing its biggest railway project in 20 years, reconnecting the embattled state of Jammu and Kashmir with the rest of India. Many ethnic Kashmiris see the 69-mile rail link as a pathway for India to cement its grip on the Himalayan region. While the Indian government says the project will bring economic prosperity to the state, the most important purpose is to give India's military year-round overland access to the valley as well as the Chinese border region beyond it, areas that otherwise are cut off during most of the winter. The conflict over the status of Jammu and Kashmir began after the partition of India in 1947, when both India and Pakistan claimed the territory. The dispute over the region escalated into three wars and several other skirmishes between nuclear-armed India and Pakistan. Kashmiris have been living on the edge since 2019 when Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government exerted direct rule over Jammu and Kashmir, stripping the state of its semi-autonomous status. Since then, Modi and his allies have been working to settle Hindus into the majority Muslim Kashmir Valley. A Kashmiri student told Foreign Policy magazine that the government of India has only invested money and effort into the railway project to create a safe corridor for its army to exert power over the state and its people. The number of mothers who receive no prenatal care is on the rise in North Carolina. In these Times Magazine reports that lack of access to basic medical facilities in rural areas is a big part of the problem. According to the March of Dimes, of the 16 medical centers that serve western North Carolina, only half provide prenatal care and delivery for the region's roughly 150,000 women of childbearing age. Due to a lack of access to prenatal and delivery services, pregnant women suffer increased risks of severe hypertension and hemorrhaging. Five rural counties are prenatal care deserts with no hospitals, no obstetric care, no gynecologists, or certified nurse midwives. Across North Carolina, 17% of pregnant women do not have access to adequate prenatal care, and in some rural counties, the level of inadequate maternal care exceeds 
Meanwhile, North Carolina had a maternal death rate of 27.6 deaths per 100,000 live births. That's 16% higher than the national maternal death rate. Most alarmingly, black women suffer from the highest maternal mortality of any racial group in the state, with 41.4 deaths of black women per 100,000 live births. The problems in North Carolina, however, are not unique, as nearly 100 hospitals across the U.S. have closed their labor and delivery units since 2010. For a century, the state of New Hampshire had a unique role in American politics, holding the first presidential primary election. But following a recommendation from President Joe Biden, the Democratic National Committee approved a new primary schedule that puts South Carolina first. It's no coincidence that South Carolina came out on top, given that the state revived Biden's failing campaign in the 2020 primaries. Advocates say the change will give Democratic voters of color a greater say in the nomination process. South Carolina's February 3rd primary will be followed by Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Michigan. Democrats are calling on New Hampshire state officials to repeal its first-in-the-nation primary law, a doubtful outcome since Republicans control the state legislature. The Christian Science Monitor reports that in recent years, activists have increasingly argued that the older, whiter populations of Iowa and New Hampshire no longer accurately reflected the makeup of the Democratic Party. Past efforts to change the primary calendar led other states being strategically moved earlier or later, but this is the first time the New Hampshire primary and Iowa caucuses have been dislodged. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Over a period of two weeks, the U.S. military shot down what we were told was a Chinese spy balloon off the South Carolina coast, followed by U.S. jets scrambled to shoot down three other unidentified flying objects over the skies of Alaska, the Canadian Yukon, and Lake Huron. The U.S. government has made little or no information public about the debris recovered from the Chinese balloon or what's known about the three other high-altitude devices shot down by American fighter jets. What is known is that the balloon incident has further inflamed already tense U.S.-China relations. After the appearance of the balloon over the U.S., the Biden administration indefinitely postponed Secretary of State Antony Blinken's February 3rd diplomatic trip to Beijing, despite China's claim that the balloon was a weather research airship that had blown off course. Another source of increasing U.S.-China tensions is the recent agreement between the U.S. and the Philippines that paved the way for the American military to gain access to four additional military bases there, allowing for the construction of facilities at a total of nine locations across the Philippines. The Pentagon says the Philippines' bases will be part of a growing network of U.S. bases in Asia to monitor and respond to future Chinese aggression toward Taiwan. 
Your reporter spoke with Dr. David Vine, professor of political anthropology at American University and author. Here, Professor Vine talks about the danger of rising U.S.-China tensions and how following an alternative path of diplomacy could avert future conflicts. I think we do need a really calm assessment, which is pretty much exactly what we haven't received over the last 10 days. First, I think it's important to point out that the balloon itself posed no military threat to the United States, contrary to what many politicians and some parts of the media might have led people to believe. Similarly, we need to point out that there is no evidence, certainly that I've seen, I don't think anyone has seen, that the three unidentified objects that have been shot down in recent days are Chinese or have anything to do with China. And the balloon incident has unfortunately only escalated the kind of fear-mongering that some politicians and members of the media are making a lot of hay with and that are only contributing to rising military tensions between the United States and China. Regardless of what the balloon was, I think there's increasing evidence that it probably was a spy balloon. It's also a distraction from the fact that there is massive spying that's going on on a daily basis by satellite, by numerous forms of technology, and a spy balloon visible in the skies over Montana or any other part of the United States in some ways just makes China look bad. It's important to put any single balloon in a larger context, a context in which the United States, China, other major powers are spying on one another every day. One important source of rising tensions between the United States and China is the fact that the U.S. recently secured access to four additional military bases in the Philippines, what we're told was part of a large network of U.S. bases to monitor and respond to future Chinese aggression toward Taiwan. In other words, this is part of a policy of containment. I wondered if you would just comment on the dangers you see in the expansion of U.S. military bases around the South China Sea and Asia in general. Again, this is precisely the wrong approach when the United States should be building up its diplomatic presence in East Asia, its embassies and and diplomats, as well as other forms of engagement, political, economic, cultural, educational. The United States, by the Pentagon's own count, already has around 313 military base sites in East Asia as part of a global network of what are now around 750 U.S. military bases in some 80 countries and colonies, more than any nation, country, people, or empire in world history. But the 313 bases in East Asia are indeed encircling and containing China, threatening China. And here's one place where the balloon incident perhaps is useful. There was a lot of fear in the United States about the appearance of this balloon, even though it didn't pose any military threat, period, to the United States. Imagine if China had announced on the same day the creation of a single Chinese military base somewhere near U.S. borders in Mexico and Canada in the Caribbean. How would U.S. citizens, leaders have reacted? You can imagine, just judging on the reaction to the balloon incident, that there would have been calls for an immediate military response. Meanwhile, China every day lives 
surrounded by U.S. military bases in Guam and Okinawa, Japan, other parts of Japan, South Korea, Australia, and indeed in the Philippines, where the Biden administration has announced that it is going to deploy forces to four more bases, in addition to the five existing bases that the United States already operates in the Philippines, bringing the total to nine. This, again, is precisely only encouraging the Chinese government to respond militarily. You can imagine the pressures in China, people calling for a Chinese military response in response to these new U.S. bases uh, that will be established in the Philippines, or at least a U.S. military presence at Philippines military bases. This is indeed intended to threaten China. And this is the approach that we need to move away from. Uh, we move, need to move away from military threats and toward a form of engagement with China built on cooperation, cooperation around the, the real threats that are facing all of us, including global warming, global pandemics, and the territorial disputes in East Asia. The United States could play a very productive role in helping to resolve some of the territorial disputes between countries like the Philippines and China uh, while bringing actual peace and stability to the region. That was Dr. David Vine, professor of political anthropology at American University and author of The United States of War. Find more analysis and commentary on rising U.S.-China tensions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A devastating train derailment February 3rd in a small town on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border has once again raised fears of so-called bomb trains crisscrossing America. About 50 train cars derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, about 20 of them carrying hazardous chemicals. Vinyl chloride, the chemical used to make PVC pipe, was the initial concern, but the Norfolk Southern Railroad has since revealed other toxic chemicals were on board, including the carcinogen ethyl hexyl acrylate and butyl acrylate. More than 2,000 residents were evacuated, and as often happens, federal authorities downplayed the severity of the toxic release and told residents it was safe to return. Calls for action from local leaders, up to President Joe Biden, continue to mount as the full extent of the disaster grows. Officials have recently confirmed that chemicals from the derailment have leached into the Ohio River Basin, potentially affecting 25 million people. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Amanda Kiger, director of the group River Valley Organizing, a community organization that works for a safer, cleaner environment in small towns and rural areas along the Ohio River. Here she describes the conditions in East Palestine after the derailment and alternatives to toxic bomb trains that speed through populated communities. They have been told it's safe to go home and to go back, and it's not safe. Our county is very poor. We're some of the lowest economic strata in Ohio. And so some folks were lucky enough that um, before they went back in, they were actually able to pay somebody to come in and say whether their home was safe or not. And those folks that did that, they have been told their home is not safe. And so we have other folks that have no money. They are working poor, working retail, restaurant jobs that are being forced with their children to go back when it's not safe. From the folks that got, went back to a Pennsylvania home, they actually had a data sheet that can help them get a little bit of better protections. 
it had things in it um such as like don't vacuum your your rugs for so many days make sure you change your air folders get your air ducts cleaned out those kind of things that though isn't really may not help them these gave them something the folks on the ohio side were just told to go home what is it that's not safe about it it still has high levels of pollutants in it so that's what they're detecting in there's still chemical exposure and in many folks, so this is a small, almost rural town, right? This is a small town. Um, you know, there's a creek that runs right through it. There's creeks that run right through directly through folks' property. And so folks are literally 20 steps away from their front door to the creek. And they've been told to stay a thousand feet away from that creek because it would melt rubber. But they're being told to go into their homes that are not 20 feet, like literally 20 footsteps away from the bank. Why did this even happen? Do we know yet? We have been in contact with a few folks and they are out actually going through the whistleblower process and gaining that protection. Um, but we've been told um, by folks that work for the railroad and folks that have contracted with the railroad that so there were some safety measures that were cut um, because as a, as a cost saving measure. And you know, that on top of um, in 2015, we begged the federal government to not let these bomb trains come through our communities. We knew this was going to happen. We fought it because they had to have special permission to have these types of volatile substances on railways that went through communities. The federal government allowed this to happen. They didn't listen. And since that, in 2015, there's been hundreds of instances much like ours along the routes of these bomb trains. So it's the Department of Transport, Federal Department of Transportation that didn't listen? You know, there's just so much blame to go around from how it happened, what could have stopped it clear up into the remediation of Ohio's governor refusing to make this a federal disaster so FEMA can come in and give our community the supports it needs. So when you said you don't want the bomb trains, that's very understandable. People fighting pipelines and pipelines that have been delayed or stopped, then, you know, the companies, the oil companies send the oil on bomb trains and there's been some horrible accidents. People would say, well, the solution isn't to put it through pipelines because we don't want the pipelines either. So what, what do you want to see happen with these toxic materials? I would say the, many of the materials that on this specific train itself was actually being brought here for the petrochemical hub that's being built here because of the shale gas boom. So I would say we need to, we need to have that dress transition. We've been begging for it for years. I know we've been begging for it for the 20 years I've been in the movement. And so I think that's that big, large chasm, right? That, that big, large thing that we need, we need to stop the now it's the time. We have to transition to clean energy. There isn't another choice at this point. Ohio itself used to be number one in solar manufacturing. That was a good piece of our economy. Our economy doesn't have to be gas and oil. We can move back into that. That is just the answer. As long as we're working with volatile substances to feed our greed and to feed our need for electricity, which we do need in plastics, you know, that people think we need, we're going to have this. Um, you think you kind of get used to saying this. Sometimes it also just off a little more every time you say it but really we keep predicting the future and the disasters we predict keep happening when are we going to listen when are we going to listen to science when are we going to protect our, our future and our people this isn't a surprise we knew this was coming that was amanda kiger director of the group river valley organizing learn more about the effects of the ohio train derailment and the work of river valley organizing by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 
Three of the four Nord Stream pipelines that carried natural gas from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea were destroyed by an explosion of unknown origin on September 26 last year. Investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch released a report on February 8th that claims U.S. Navy divers set bombs that destroyed the Nord Stream pipeline in an operation authorized by President Biden. The White House called the accusation utterly false and complete fiction. Hirsch, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his reports on the U.S. military's 1968 My Lai massacre in Vietnam and helped expose U.S. abuses at Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison in 2004, has been criticized for relying on one key unnamed source in his Nord Stream investigation. In 2021, Russia's Nord Stream pipeline system supplied 45% of the natural gas imported by European Union states. Washington had long opposed the pipeline, charging that Europe would be dangerously dependent on Russian energy at a time of growing tensions with Russia and Vladimir Putin's threat to invade Ukraine. Your reporter spoke with Bryce Green, a writer who regularly contributes to the group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting's Extra Newsletter. Here, Green summarizes Seymour Hersh's investigative report and criticizes U.S. corporate media for virtually ignoring this explosive story. Hersh's article dropped just under a week after German officials were quoted in the Times of London as saying that they're open to possibilities that the West was involved in this attack. And then, you know, so Hersh's piece drops, and he alleges that uh, the United States had planned this attack and had began planning it uh, as early as August of 2021. So this is while the Russian buildup is happening, but be- long before the war has even started. Uh, but they uh, announced plans because, you know, they're opposed to the pipeline. Uh, Hirsch alleges that during military exercises with the Norwegian Navy uh, in June, the Biden administration and uh, special operations and Special soldiers, uh, they um, dove down to the pipeline, they placed C-4 explosives, and they waited. Uh, They set up a remote charge and waited for a signal from Washington to explode it. And the signal came in September 26. Hirsch's reporting relies largely on uh, one unnamed source, uh, but of course that's bolstered by his own investigation, his own discussions with other people who know uh, he recently did an interview with Mark Ames where he you know, goes over this whole quibble about sources. But the important thing to understand about this investigation is that it comports almost completely with the circumstantial evidence, up to and including the fact that Norway had also just completed a pipeline between itself and Germany that was billed as a sort of replacement to the Nord Stream And now, if you look at the numbers, Norway is now the largest supplier of natural gas. And then you also have the detail of the report, the details that uh, comport with frustration with the statements I mentioned earlier, frustration within the intelligence community about how Biden and Newland had both said that they were going to, you know, stop the pipeline. But there are details within his story, you know that have been disputed by the Norwegian government. It's been outright rejected by Washington, predictably. But it's important to understand that uh, sources get things wrong, and they his sources are spies and military people, and they get things wrong, and they may lie or manipulate. And how, what you think of this report 
is largely a reflection of how you view Seymour Hersh's credibility. Um, and he's gotten a lot of things right in the past that Washington has denied. You know, he's covered things like the Melee Massacre, Abu Ghraib, and the CIA Operation Chaos. Like, he has pretty great credentials. And the fact that his story comports with the circumstantial evidence gives it another level of credibility. If you accept that Washington had the means, motive, and opportunity to do this, then you understand that there is a serious problem with uh, the way the media handled this. And a serious press would investigate Hirsch's allegations and try to sift out fact from fiction and try to get to the bottom of it uh, instead of just dismissing it and denying that it's even a credible report, calling it a blog post or calling Hirsch a discredited journalist. That's not the way a serious press ought to handle these serious accusations. Right. You know, one thing you mentioned, I, I think it's worth reiterating, and that is who won and who lost from the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline? In other words, what are the relative positions of the United States, Norway, and Russia after this pipeline was destroyed, given that much of the U.S. press basically pointed the finger at Russia, telling the world that Russia blew up its own pipeline? which on the face of it doesn't make a lot of sense. Russia wanted to sell natural gas to Germany. Uh, you know, a sovereign nation wanted to make a deal with another sovereign nation about a uh, key commodity. They wanted to build uh, this pipeline to strengthen the ties between those two countries. The U.S. does not want Russia to be close to Germany. They don't want Germany to be close with Russia. They want to dominate to the greatest extent possible the European society and European markets and the European economy. Um, that's just a matter of uh, a matter of course in Washington uh, planning circles. Uh, and Norway, uh, they also have their own uh, major natural gas industry, and they receive a boost from uh, the destruction of the pipeline. And so you have all of these actors with all of these conflicting interests, and the U.S. press tries to say that the actor with the least interest in the destruction of the pipeline is the most responsible. That's not good journalism. That's not good investigative work. That's not good logic. I think the, the press ought to do better than that because this is a serious issue. Whether or not the United States was involved in espionage against an ostensible ally is a serious question. And if the U.S. press is unwilling to, to talk about it, well, that, that's a real indictment of the, uh, you know, the free press that we like to talk so much about in this country. That was Bryce Green, an Indiana-based writer and regular contributor to Extra, the newsletter of the media watch group FAIR. Find a link to his October 2022 story titled U.S. Media's Intellectual No-Fly Zone on U.S. Culpability in the Nord Stream Attack and Seymour Hersh's investigation how America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio, 
and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.